we're taking a two-week break from our sermon series in John's Gospel to consider uh, some verses in the 12th chapter of the book of Hebrews. New City, your pastors feel it's wise to return to certain topics again and again in the life of our church, topics such as marriage, child-rearing, money and possessions, the doctrine of justification, even if those issues sometimes fall outside the parameters of a current sermon series. So that's what's going to be happening over the next two weeks as we consider the topic of parental discipline. You should know, Christian, the Bible speaks to the topic, the subject of parental discipline. It's an essential part of child-rearing, and so believers want to know what God has told us in his word because we tend to hold strong views about parental discipline, don't we? I don't think I've met anyone who's neutral on the subject. Someone who says, yeah, I don't really have an opinion on that. (laughs) We all have opinions. How many times have you found yourself biting your tongue because a parent has a different standard than you that they're putting into practice or perhaps not putting into practice, as the case may be? But our views are often rooted in our experience. And we tend to react strongly to our experiences, don't we? Perhaps we experienced physical abuse or something we think is close to it. And that colors our perception on the matter. Or perhaps we never experienced much discipline at all from our parents. We children, our brothers and sisters, we pretty much ruled the roost. And that colors our outlook. Let me tell you where I'm coming from. I'm the oldest of three children. I'm a child of divorce, reared by my mother, and my parents did not abuse me. Parental discipline was biblical, loving, and consistently administered in our home. But since one person's experiences never completely matches another's, there's simply no way for me to approach this subject in a way that seems completely balanced to everyone because we all have such a wide range of perspectives. And because of those different perspectives, people may disagree on what aspects of parental discipline we should emphasize. I would argue that there are three. Teaching, warning, and enforcing. And we're going to take an in-depth look at all three of those things next week, Lord willing. Uh, All the nitty-gritty stuff is next Lord's Day. It's going to be a real barn burner. You won't want to miss it. Uh, But there's a complicating factor in this. I don't have children which means I won't be drawing primarily on my admittedly limited reserve of knowledge and wisdom called from life experience. Uh, Instead, I'm going to draw on the wisdom of other mature Christians and what God has revealed to us in his holy scriptures. Uh, God has spoken in his word, loved ones, in the Bible about parental discipline. And so by the Holy Spirit's enabling grace, I want to preach those words. That's where your pastor's teaching authority primarily lies, in the text, not his experience. However, and I'm sure some of you already sussed this out, the primary purpose of Hebrews chapter 12 is not related to parental discipline. Hebrews 12 addresses Christians who are suffering, and who are considering throwing in the towel of abandoning the gospel of Jesus Christ, of apostatizing. The burden of a great deal of the letter to the Hebrews is that it's dangerously, dangerously possible to start our marathon of faith well, to make a fine show of Christian life and strength at the beginning of the race, but only faith which perseveres to the end is genuine. And as paradoxical as it sounds, God lovingly disciplines his children, which includes suffering and hardship. He does that in order that we may persevere in our faith and share in his holiness. Look at verse 11 of Hebrews chapter 12. No discipline seems pleasant at the time but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Brothers and sisters, that's what we need to understand from Hebrews 12 first. Right? However, even though Hebrews 12 isn't primarily about 
human parenting, there are principles, and I've listed them in your bulletin. You can see seven propositions about discipline from Hebrews 12, 4 to 11. There are principles which are useful in helping us think through our own parental discipline. So let's just look at that list. God disciplines his children. God disciplines all his children. God disciplines only his children. Discipline is training. God disciplines his children for their good. Discipline seems unpleasant and painful. God's children should endure God's discipline. And number seven, God's disciplining his children compares to human parents disciplining their children. And so next Sunday, I hope to use God's model of parental discipline with us uh, to in turn inform our own outlook, our own practice of parental discipline, along with some wise teachings from the book of Proverbs. But first things first, we need to start by considering suffering and Christian suffering in particular. New City, in spite of what proponents of the so-called health and wealth prosperity gospel tell us, I'm sure that you've noticed there are no 150-year-old, beautiful, healthy-looking Christians walking around. Right? Just like everybody else, believers in Jesus Christ, we get old and wrinkled and sick. And even though Christians are citizens of the inaugurated kingdom of God, even though we are heirs, we're heirs to the covenantal blessings promised to the patriarchs and fulfilled in Jesus Christ, even so, we still contract cancer. We have children who die in tragic accidents. Christians have spouses who are belittling, abusive, and unfaithful. Christians lose their homes in devastating fires and earthquakes. In many parts of the world, Christians face famine and war and poverty. And, and by, <clears throat> by listing all these hardships, I'm, I'm not saying God doesn't sometimes intervene on behalf of his people in remarkable ways. What I'm saying is that Christians, too, we live in a fallen world. We're not immune. None of us are immune to calamities because we're Christians. If you live long enough, you will suffer. Though perhaps, perhaps you are a person who's been suffering from the day that you were born which wouldn't be unusual biblically speaking it's part of the heritage of all sons and daughters of adam but is there a type of suffering unique to god's people unique to christians actually there is according to the bible probably the most dominant form of suffering unique to God's children is the discipline our Heavenly Father himself meets out. Both the Old and New Testament talk about this a great deal. Now, this isn't necessarily discipline as divine punishment. I want to make that clear. You've been a bad Christian, so God sees to it that you lose your job and he strikes you down with polio. What I'm talking about and what Hebrews 12 is talking about is that the divine discipline, which our Heavenly Father uses as a tool, he uses that discipline as a tool to refine and strengthen the faith of his children, all of his children. And that discipline is going to be a hardship of some kind. It's going to be unpleasant. It can be almost anything. There's a great diversity in the discipline of god god even uses evil he's sovereign over everything but when god disciplines his children it's always always a loving action those providentially directed hardships are to make us holy they're to cultivate spiritual growth develop godly character and perseverance of faith in the purposes of our sovereign God, that is their aim. Look at verse 10. Our parents disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. And then verse 14, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Oh, brothers and sisters, do we believe it? Perhaps we do in the theological abstract, but do we live like it's so? Because those are two entirely different things. And as your pastor, 
I know some of you right now are living in the most difficult days of your life. Brother, sister, on a practical level, as it's manifested in your daily living, can you honestly say God's loving discipline is serving its biblical God-glorifying purpose? Are you allowing it? Are you giving your Heavenly Father's loving discipline theological room in your life to do its work? Beloved, we must learn that part of living as faithful children of a sovereign God is tied to trusting God when he can only be seen dimly behind circumstances and events that are painful and sorrowful and evil. God disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. Those aren't just words in a dusty old book. That's divine, powerful, powerful truth that needs to be evidenced in our lives. It's evidenced by our Christian joy, right? our contentment, our speech, our actions, our thoughts. It's evidenced by our prayers, I think especially in our prayers. We preach biblical truth to our heart in prayer, right? We rehearse the promises of God in prayer. We remind God of the truth of his word in prayer. Suffering Christian, by the grace and power of the Holy Spirit, are you striving to align your will to God's even in your pain? How does one do that? What does God's word say? Look at our first point in the bulletin, Christian. Don't think something strange is happening when you face suffering in this life. God disciplines his children. And Christina, on this, the day of your baptism, of your initiation into the church of Jesus Christ, there are important lessons in this passage that you do well to learn Now, at the beginning of your Christian pilgrimage, sister, so much mental anguish and suffering in the Christian's experience is tied to false expectations. And Satan exploits those false expectations with great success. Christina, your brothers and sisters at New City want you to start the marathon of your faith, of your Christian life, with biblical expectations. So from time to time... I'm going to call out particular points of this passage to your attention, all right? Now, if I were foolish enough to sign up for a marathon, (laughs) I know more or less what to expect. One, I wouldn't make it. (laughs) But I would know this, too. All the participants would be expected to run 42 kilometers on flat pavement, Uh, The only variable, really, would be the weather. It could be hot, it could be cold, it could be raining. Uh, But apart from that, a marathon is relatively straightforward. 42 kilometers of running, right? No surprises. It's not going to be like that TV show from the early 90s, American Gladiators. Remember that show? How old do you are? I don't know. (laughs) Do you remember the mullets in that show? But for the unenlightened, contestants in that televisual feast competed in various trials of athletic prowess while hard bodies with cheesy names like laser turbo ice and nitro fired nerf ball rockets from the sidelines tackled them and then knocked them off balance with these huge padded clubs so mix that kind of contact sport with a grueling marathon that requires perseverance and we see something of what the christian life is like it's not, just, it's not just a marathon run on flat pavement that requires perseverance to the end. It's also a marathon where our faith in our Heavenly Father is being demonstrated in a context of active divine discipline, of providential hardship, which God sovereignly brings into our life because he loves us. Actually, this isn't the first time Uh, This theme of perseverance in the midst of suffering has come up in the book of Hebrews. Just turn back to chapter 10, verses 32 to 36. He writes this to the church, Hebrews uh, chapter 10, verse 32. Remember those earlier days after you had received the light. 
So when you're brand new Christians, when you endured in a great conflict full of suffering, sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times, you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You suffered along with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property. Because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. So do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. For in just a little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. Wow, what what an example that is to us, New City. The church, at one time, early on in their Christian pilgrimage, had joyfully accepted the confiscation of their property. These brothers and sisters had endured public exposure to insult and persecution. Members of this church were even imprisoned. Yet their perspective on all these earlier hardships, even as brand new believers, was biblical. They knew that they had better, they had lasting possessions compared to all that confiscated property. They weren't so this world focused that losing their freedom and possessions or being ridiculed in public was just an unmitigated disaster. They could say, along with the Apostle Paul, 2 Corinthians 4, 17, our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. I know a pastor uh, whose house burned down. But when the Toronto Star came to take a picture of his family in front of the smoldering ruins, the family refused to look gloomy and sad. They wanted to smile for the picture because their hope and their trust was in God. This was a light and momentary affliction. Eternity was still to come. This fire wasn't some happiness-ending calamity. Their hope and trust was in Jesus Christ, not in stuff fire or rust could destroy or thieves could steal. So the Toronto Star didn't publish the photograph. In this church's present trouble, whatever that trouble is, they must persevere so that when they have done the will of God, they will receive what he has promised Christians. And of course, their supreme example of faith in the midst of hardship is to be their savior, Jesus Look at verse 3 of chapter 12. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Christian, let me ask, are you experiencing suffering and hardships? Uh, Are forces in this world hostile to Jesus Christ, tempting you to flag and fail in your marathon of faith? Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Jesus faithfully endured the shame of the cross and the wrath of his Father on our behalf, and his faithfulness, brothers and sisters, is to be our example. In the midst of his abandonment by the Father and all the pain and shame and cruelty of Golgotha, Jesus didn't grow weary and lose heart. Jesus didn't collapse in faithlessness before reaching the goal, before accomplishing the will of his father and redeeming a people for himself. So do you see, that's the concern of the author of Hebrews. He he wants to inspire God's people to run with faithful endurance. He doesn't want us to collapse before reaching the end goal, before crossing that finish line. But it seems that in the present difficulties this first century church is experiencing, there's been a weakening of resolve, a failure of nerve, a lack of faith on at least on the part of at least some within the congregation. So just imagine, New City, that we were facing a situation like this. Imagine our sister Angela's possessions had been confiscated by the government because of her Christian beliefs. Imagine our brother Armando was rotting away in some jail because of his faith in Jesus Christ. Imagine Mary Jo was being publicly ridiculed, exposed to insults and persecution because of her allegiance to her Savior. And now all three are thinking of throwing in the towel. They're growing weary. They're losing heart. And it certainly doesn't have to be as dramatic as any of that for a professing Christian to be tempted to abandon the truth of the gospel. But 
how should we respond then as a church with that sort of a situation? One way is to preach this text. Right? Look at verse 3 again. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. So we would say, Angela, look to Jesus. Armando, consider Jesus' example. Mary Jo, consider Jesus who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Verse 4, in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted the point of shedding your blood. Their efforts to combat these forces of hostile opposition haven't produced any martyrs yet. So what are they complaining about? It's it's a pretty blunt verse. (laughs) They haven't suffered as much as others have suffered. Think of the faithful witnesses back in Hebrews chapter 11, the great hall of faith. Verse 37 of chapter 11 tells us that some of those people were stoned to death or sawn in half. And Jesus, too, he gave his life. And yet all remained faithful in spite of great suffering. The question is, then, whether they will remain faithful in the face of lesser suffering. Really, the question is, New City, will we remain faithful in the face of much lesser suffering? The original recipients of this letter are facing hardship. They're facing suffering. But this is no time to be discouraged. This is no time for their faith in God to be flagging. What they must understand is their hardships are a token of their heavenly Father's love. (laughs) As paradoxical as that sounds, it's absolutely true. Their hardships are a token of their heavenly Father's love. These providential hardships are the means by which God is training them to be more truly his children. And the love of God is never to be despised. Christina, I want you to pay particular attention to this, sister. This is so basic and such an indispensable part of our Christian outlook that to forget this or to disregard it or not to believe it and to hope that the universe works on a different principle, 99.9 times out of 100, uh, with cases for us, uh, that is actually to pull out, of, pull the bottom of any kind of biblical view of God and his love for his blood-bought people and for you. This is a very important lesson. It, it, it introduces a satanic disconnect between the truth of what our Heavenly Father has revealed in Holy Scripture and how we live our lives. And the evil one can exploit that to no end. Look out. New City, how can a child of God willingly, knowingly, shun the love of their Heavenly Father? I'd like to say such a thing is absolutely impossible. It could never happen. But we do it all the time. How? By forgetting the word of God. Or by ignoring it. Or by not believing in it. Or not striving, striving by God's grace to trust it. Even if our life is crumbling around us. Christians must remember the words of Scripture if we're to view our troubles in their proper perspective. Let me put it this way. Um, Have you ever made a fool of yourself because you didn't read a text a friend sent to you thoroughly, and so you assumed it said one thing, and so you made your plans? And then the friend didn't show up at the arranged time, at the arranged place, and and then (coughs) you got all upset and called them up and you ripped into them. And they say, hey, man, I told you what was going on in my text. It's all there in the thread. Didn't you read it closely? And so we go back and we read it again. And go, oh, yeah, we were in the wrong. We didn't read it. It's right there in black and white. Brothers and sisters, God isn't in the habit of giving his children extra biblical revelation in the midst of life's hardships. Something beyond the Bible, right? If you get really, really sick or your spouse, or your child does, or if you lose your job, or if your marriage stinks, and you begin to doubt the love of God and the goodness of his character, no angel is going to appear by your side and tell you otherwise. What will happen instead is a brother or sister in Christ will speak the truth of Scripture to you. 
Your pastor will preach the truth of Scripture to you. We'll sing it together as a local congregation on a Sunday morning. You will read it for yourself or remember the truth of Scripture. But if God has disclosed truth to his people in the Scripture and we fail to live accordingly, the fault lies with us. We're without excuse. These Christians in Hebrews chapter 12 may have wondered why God's people suffer insult and rejection and persecution at all. Perhaps they were trying to reconcile the pain and suffering and loss in their life with their worship of an omnipotent God who loves them, a God who could change the situation just like that if he so desired. And and these hardships were enough to make them doubt God's love and they're, they're beginning to lose heart. What they didn't understand, what they had forgotten was that the love of our omnipotent Heavenly Father is expressed to His children in discipline. And now we come to it. Verse 5. And have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as children? It says, get ready, my son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines those he loves and he chastens everyone he accepts as his child. Be encouraged. Beloved, if we would truly be wise Christians, obedient, consistent Christians in times of hardship, unshaken, sure, certain in our faith, then we must accept hardship and suffering and trial as God's loving method of training and disciplining us. Discipline is a token of your heavenly Father's love, Christina. His discipline shows you that you are truly His beloved child. Deuteronomy 8.5 Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, so the Lord your God disciplines you. Be encouraged. God's discipline is evidence of his love and his commitment to us. Divine discipline and sonship go hand in hand. So, let's take that then to the next level. This means, in the midst of any hardship God providentially steers our way, we need to ask, what is the divine intention behind this hardship? Now, God has revealed his thinking on this matter in New Testament scripture in a number of places. I can think of uh, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, or James, Romans, 1 Peter, Hebrews, the book of Revelation. And his good intention behind trials and suffering is very diverse. It accomplishes different purposes. And different texts speak to different purposes. We're just looking at one today. But in any text of the New Testament, does it ever once say, does it ever once hint... That if we experience suffering or loss or persecution, hardship, trial, illness, financial ruin, death. If we are buffeted by pure evil in this life. That we have been abandoned by our Heavenly Father. That God's goodness or his omnipotent power or his love for his children may legitimately now be called into question, because I'm experiencing this. That this affliction has the purpose of weakening us in our faith, or is detrimental to our Christian practice. Do we ever, ever have biblical warrant to believe such a thing? No, never. Quite the reverse. It's because our Heavenly Father loves us that he disciplines us. Will we believe it? Will we persevere in faith and be instructed and encouraged by the testimony of Holy Scripture? Will we live like what this book of the Bible says is true? Christian, I I just like, I, I like how this is just, it's phrased, but don't think something strange is happening to you when you face suffering in this life. God disciplines his children. So in the midst of life's hardships, consider Jesus, who endured opposition from sinners. And remember to keep things in their proper perspective, right? In your struggle against sin, 
you have not yet shed your blood, as did our Savior, as did some of those faithful witnesses back in chapter 11, stoned to death, sawn in half. So keep calling the scriptures to mind. Keep preaching biblical truth to your heart. Keep praying it through. Keep singing with us every Sunday. That biblical truth, rehearsing it to yourself over and over again. Be encouraged. The Lord disciplines and chastens everyone he accepts as a child. The Lord disciplines and chastens everyone he accepts as a child. Which brings us to our second and much shorter point. Number two, Christian, we glory in our sufferings because we know what it produces in us. Verse 7, endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? Now, in an Old Testament context, the primary responsibility for family discipline belonged to the father. And God held the father responsible for the instruction and correction of his sons and daughters. And, of course, a loving father would exempt none of his children from loving disciplinary instruction. For a man not to discipline his children, far from being a loving action, shows something else about the child's paternity entirely. In the same way, we need to recognize that exemption from the corrective discipline experienced by all genuine children of God would imply a very unwelcomed inference. It's actually a bad sign if discipline is lacking, if it's absent, because it means love is absent. God disciplines his children because he loves us. Verse 8, if you are not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate children at all. Or perhaps the more antiquated but very direct language of the King James Version is helpful. If ye be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then ye are bastards and not sons. Now, I'm sure we've all been in the grocery store when some kid has a meltdown in the aisle because mommy or daddy wouldn't buy the kid a bag of cheese doodles. And we just know with smug certainty that this little hellion has never had a trip to the woodshed in their entire life. But as much as we may be tempted to volunteer for the office right there, (laughs) it would be utterly inappropriate, at least in contemporary Canadian culture, for us to take matters into our own hands and discipline another person's child. That's the parent's job. Although I had a friend whose father told Mr. Wilkes, our grade 7 teacher, if my son misbehaves in class, I don't want to hear about it. Take him out back and thrash him. You have my permission. Ah, the 80s. (laughs) Verse 8. If you are not disciplined, and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate children at all. Brothers and sisters, discipline is so much a part of God's way with his people that if any live without God's discipline in their lives, our status as God's children is called into question. Such people show themselves to be not legitimate children at all. The summons then for Christians to endure hardship as divine discipline serves to remind us of our status as legitimate children of God. And this, in turn, should strengthen our resolve to persevere further. The thing is, when's the last time we thought of the hardships we're experiencing in life in those sorts of terms? Have we forgotten what the scriptures teach? God forbid. Verse 9, moreover, we have all had parents who disciplined us and we respected them for it. Like some of you, I'm a child of divorce. I was raised by my mother, and my mother was a loving disciplinarian. Now, I hated being disciplined by her at the time, but her love for me, as it it was expressed uh, in her discipline, had a great effect upon me. And looking back on it all all these years later, I respect her for it. I I respect her for the way that she disciplined me. Verse 9. We have all had parents who disciplined us and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit 
to the Father of Spirits and live. Remember, what's God's intention in providentially steering hardship our way? It's not to drive us away from him or to cause us to be faithless or to discourage us or to spiritually debilitate us and to make us weak. It's that we might live. Nothing less than our eternal life is at stake here. That's why God disciplines his children. The discipline of God that brings endurance in life's marathon of faith culminates in life with him. And we must not rob ourselves of the eternal spiritual benefit of God's fatherly discipline by supposing that our particular hardship is not a suitable circumstance for applying this teaching. That our particular thorn in the flesh is somehow an exemption to God's rule. We're the one exception in the universe after all time, right? Christina, are you trusting in the gospel of Jesus Christ? Are you repenting of all known sin? then you are indeed a child of God. And through your affliction, our Heavenly Father is fitting you for eternal fellowship with himself. Believe it. And the particular way he has sovereignly chosen to discipline you, sister, is perfect. It's perfect. And it's a discipline to which every child of God must obediently submit not forgetting this word of encouragement that addresses us as a father addresses his son. My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline. And do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastens everyone he accepts as a son. Verse 10. Our parents disciplined us for a little while as they thought best. Human parental discipline is temporary. It lasts only as long as we're children or as we live in the parent's house, and it's fallible. But even if our parents meant well, not all their discipline resulted in what's best for us, right? Um, They made mistakes, even my sainted mother. (laughs) They made poor judgments. They disciplined in anger. By contrast, God, in his infinite wisdom, consistently disciplines his children all throughout our lives, and it's always, always, always for our benefit. God disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. Oh, Christian, just think about that, what that's saying, sharing in God's holiness. Christine, to think that because of your sufferings, you are on a divinely guided trajectory to that goal, sister, as am I, as are all of us who are united to Jesus Christ. Holiness is the goal for which God is preparing all of his people. That entire perfect sanctification, which is consummated when our Lord returns in glory. But this consummation isn't attained just like that. It says, Paul and Barnabas told the young churches of South Galatia in Acts 14, 22, we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. I conveniently forget that that verse is in my Bible. It's all a matter of perspective. As Carson wisely warns, I want you to hear this. This is very good. If our highest goals are creature comforts, if we desire above all else in this life good health, good reputations, the enjoyments of family, the free enjoyment of our possessions, money, friends, this text of Scripture is incomprehensible. It's true. We'll want to avoid our Heavenly Father's disciplining hand and the holiness and perseverance it produces in his legitimate children like the touch of a leper. If hardships in this life serve as impediments in reaching our goals, of reaching our creaturely comforts, and if those creaturely comforts are, in fact, what we love most in this passing world, if they are our treasure where our heart is located, then we will not submit to the Lord's discipline. It stands to reason. Friend, if your faith in Jesus is a superficial masquerade over the long haul, 
as you face hardship and suffering, it will be found out for what it is. At some decisive point, you'll have to pick the path of ease, whatever that looks like, over obedience to the word of God. But if our highest goals include growth in Christian character, persevering faith, sharing in God's holiness, if above all else in this life we desire to be obedient to the commands of God, then we'll preach this text to our wandering hearts again and again and again, and our lives will demonstrate its truth. You see, what makes this text so difficult is our life priorities are so often sinfully warped. I know mine are. Just think. It's a little thought experiment. If someone told you, you will have to endure great hardship, you'll have to endure great tribulation, but in the end, you will be fabulously wealthy. Or, if they said, you will have to endure great hardship and trials, but in the end, you will have a wonderful, loving spouse and a bevy of bright, beautiful children. Or, you will have to endure great hardships and trials, but in the end, you will wield great political power. I think most of us might be inclined to say... Well, that's what it takes. I'm ready to do it. The end result is something I so greatly desire. It's, It's worth the hardship. Our text asks, is holiness? Is persevering faith? Is life with God? One commentator writes, since it's God's intention that believers participate in his holiness through loving correction, the clear implication is that apart from God's disciplinary sufferings, it's not possible to share in it at all. Verse 11. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, It produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Discipline trains us to be righteous. So there we have it. Beloved, we glory in our sufferings because we know what it produces in us. A harvest of righteousness and peace a harvest seen on the last day when we are declared by God before all the universe to have right standing before him, having been reconciled to him through the cross of his son. And eschatological realities like peace and righteousness, those last times, end days realities like that, like peace and righteousness, they will be ours because, of, because our Heavenly Father's loving discipline has developed and tested our faith. The present painful experience of discipline, or that might be, right? it has that glorious result. The thing is, though, even though we're striving by God's grace to accept all this passage is teaching us right now, when we actually experience the next dose of discipline, it's not going to be a pleasant experience. All the correct theology in the world isn't going to make a divine spanking sting less. At the time, no discipline seems pleasant, but painful. That's what the text says. And yet, it does help to know that there is light at the end of the tunnel, loved ones. Even if we can't see it yet. Right? That's why why this teaching is in our Bibles. It helps us. It helps us to know that God is in control and that he is committed to his children's good. Even though it may not look that way right now. And as an aside, let me say this. This is a really important aside. It's often the uncertainty of reading what's going on that breeds pain. We ask ourselves uh, in the midnight of our trial, is this blow I've received God's way of telling me to change something in my life? Is this blow a form of discipline designed to toughen me up or soften me or make me more useful? Or 
is it a part of the heritage of all the sons and daughters of Adam who lived this side of Christ's return, unrelated to discipline, but part of God's mysterious providence in a fallen world? Christian, must we always decide? If a little self-examination shows us how to improve, then we ought to improve. Maybe you need to pray more. Then pray more, right? If we can see that we need to change, then we need to change. But there will be times in our life when we all, all we can responsibly do is trust, trust our Heavenly Father in the midst of darkness and pain. Sometimes we're just going to have to depend on God and not know what's going on at all. Finally, very quickly, our third point, a call to Christian action in the face of suffering individually and as a church. And perhaps there's someone here today who needs to renew their commitment to complete the marathon of faith. Brother, sister, these final verses are an exhortation. They're an appeal from God directly to you, his child, and to all of us as a local church. These are our marching orders, New City. Verse 12, Therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. Make level paths for your feet. That is, choose the straight way. Stay obedient. So that the lame may not be disabled, but rather healed. Arms and knees are symbols of strength and activity in the Bible. And to complete the marathon of faith, we require flexed arms and strong knees. But here... The arms of the child of God have become slack. The knees have weakened. This physical imagery is describing the struggling Christian's morale. And so the writer is really reminding this person of everything he's just written in chapter 12, everything I've just preached. That's why he says, therefore, right? Considering everything I just wrote to you, everything I just preached, therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. That's a command. How do we do that? How do they do that? By considering Jesus, right, who endured such opposition from sinners. And by realizing in their struggle against sin, they haven't been martyred yet. And by remembering the scriptures, the Lord disciplines and chastens everyone he accepts as his child. So they can glory in their suffering because they know what it produces in them. A harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Therefore, Strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. Make level paths for your feet. Stay obedient. Why? So that the lame may not be disabled, but rather healed. Christian, this means we're to keep our eyes peeled and our ears open for other brothers and sisters who are experiencing hardship, who are under the disciplining hand of God. This is what it means to be part of a local church. Believers have a responsibility. We have a great privilege to care for one another and to encourage each other to persevere in the faith. Even as we endure hardship, trial, and discipline. See, it's going on at the same time. We're encouraging others even as we are experiencing that discipline from our Heavenly Father. That's the argument here. Strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. Make level paths for your feet, Christian, so that you, in turn, can help others. So the lame in the church body may not be disabled, but rather healed. Because we're in this marathon of faith together, New City. We're one body. Sprains and and sort of similar injuries must be bound up so the whole community can compete the marathon without loss. We're helping each other get across that finish line. We're helping each other get to heaven. Christina, when you're baptized into, into the membership of this church body this afternoon, that's what you're pledging to do. You're pledging to help me get to heaven. And Nick and Andrew and Angela. And and we're all pledging to help you get to heaven, sister. Even as we've already pledged to help each other. Because when Jesus returns, we want to see every single member of this church at the finish line receiving that imperishable crown. This, This marathon of faith isn't a competition, right? Like gold for you and silver for you and bronze for you. No, this is a team effort. 
So perhaps, perhaps we need to start thinking of our salvation in more corporate terms and in less individualistic terms. I mean, can you imagine? Can you imagine if because I was so preoccupied with my own hardships in life, my own trials, and I refuse to learn the lessons that this passage teaches, and I, I forget the word of encouragement God has placed for me in his word, all that's going on, so I stop helping my brothers and sisters from getting to heaven. I stop that. God forbid. We're one body, and a local church doesn't stand idly by as one of its members stumbles down the road to hell. I'm just going to say this. With the, I'm going to keep the bark on it. Do you have problems, Christian? We all have problems. We're all being disciplined by our Heavenly Father. That doesn't mean we bail out of church life. So strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. Make level paths for your feet so that the lame at New City Baptist Church may not be disabled, but rather healed. We all have a responsibility. And getting back to what I said at the start of our service, if you're a Christian and not a member of a local church that you're attending regularly, come talk with, with me or with Pastor Alex after the service. Brother, sister, this is serious business. Don't be a lone ranger Christian a moment longer. Church membership is biblical. Church membership is about a local church taking specific responsibility for an individual Christian. And that individual Christian for a local church as they live out their lives in the context of the fellowship and love and discipline of that local assembly. Membership helps us to know which Christians on planet Earth we are specifically responsible to love and serve and warn and encourage and help that the lame may not be disabled, but rather healed. And it's within the accountability structures of the local church that Christians live out or embody what it means to be the body of Christ or the temple of the spirit, the family, the family of God. Friend, you are spiritually needy. We're all spiritually needy. We need one another. We all need the loving care and discipline of a local congregation. The eye cannot say to the hand, I do not need you. The head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. We need, that is, we must unite with brothers and sisters in the local church. Helping each other get to heaven. So let me invite you, come out this afternoon to the Budapest, to Budapest Park and witness Christina Calder being baptized into the membership of this local assembly. Amen. Let's pray.